You're listening to Fence Posts, Foundations for the Christian Life. Fence Posts is a teaching ministry of Pastor Mike Woodruff of Christ Church Lake Forest. You were made for this. About 15 years ago, eight friends and I hired several guides and set out to climb Mount Baker, the glacier-capped peak that rises nearly 11,000 feet over the far corner of the lower 48 states. We were novices. None of us had ever touched a glacier, carried an ice axe, camped in the snow, or stepped over a crevasse before. In fact, the highest any of us had ever made it up the side of a mountain was the top of a ski lift. But Baker towered over our homes every day, dwarfing everything and silently issuing a call. There are some things you simply have to do. This was one of them. And so, on a sunny day in August, we set out. The climb started easily enough. The hike through the foothills was peaceful and the trail was wide. We chatted amongst ourselves and met others on the path. Had it not been for our 50-pound backpacks, we might have even forgotten what we'd set out to do. But by early afternoon, things began to change. The trail started to narrow, the pitch grew steep, and the air became thin. Around 4 o'clock, we emerged above the tree line for the first of many spectacular views and our first significant challenge. The next couple miles required us to walk along the top of a rocky mound that traversed a deep gulch. The ridge was never less than six feet across, so it was hardly a tightrope. But after living under OSHA laws all my life, it was bizarre not to have some kind of railing to protect me especially after I realized that if we stumbled in either direction, we would not survive the fall. It was at this point that I began to appreciate the comments Paul Spence, our senior guide, had made months earlier. When I'd called to set up the trip, I had asked for some idea of how hard the climb would be. Paul's response was memorable. Climbing Baker is not an e-ticket ride at Disney World. It's full of risks. Every year people die on this mountain. It's going to demand your best effort. And so it did. Over the next 72 hours, we pushed ourselves to exhaustion, crossed a narrow ice bridge, walked along the lip of a crater, Baker is a volcano, and we peered into deep crevasses. I saw things I had never seen before, I did things I had never done before, and more significantly, I felt things I'd never felt before. Though it's hard to describe, if pressed, I'd say, I seemed smaller and yet more alive than at any other time in my life. I have pictures of the climb, memories to share, and a small rock I picked up next to a steam vent at about 10,000 feet, but nothing adequately captures what it's like to climb a mountain. The study you're about to begin is not actually about climbing mountains, it's about knowing God, but they are related. I say this not just because Moses spoke to God on Mount Sinai, and El Shaddai, one of the titles God uses to refer to himself, is an allusion to a mountain. I say this because climbing above the clouds and striving after God are both life-altering quests. They are team-based yet solitary endeavors filled with breathtaking views and riddled with deep crevasses. They both require faith, humble the strong, and offer a view of the world you cannot find anywhere else. More importantly, they're uncommon. When it comes to knowing God and climbing mountains, most people are flatlanders, content to wander in the foothills, never fully grasping what they're missing. My analogy, like all analogies, breaks down if you push it too far, but you get the point. What follows will not prepare you to plant a flag on top of Everest, but it will encourage you to do something even more challenging and far more important. 
to enter into the presence of God in a way that honors him and restores you. I believe such a step is possible, and I further believe that this is what you most desperately desire, whether you recognize it or not. In fact, I believe that this is what you were made for. You have been invited to pursue God by no one less than God himself. So how do you begin? How exactly do we know God? The Baker climb started with a briefing by Rusty, a young guide in training. He was about 20 years old and had less than a summer's experience climbing mountains, something that was pretty obvious right away. In fact, about five minutes into his opening remarks, one of my friends leaned over and joked, if he's our leader, I'm not going. But Rusty's comments were enough to get us started, in part because he had climbed a mountain before and in part because everyone realized he wasn't ultimately in charge. But mostly, Rusty's remarks got us started because we all shared a number of starting assumptions. Chiefly, we believed that the mountain was real and that the way to the top was up the east face. I'm making similar assumptions in this quest before us. For starters, I'm assuming you believe that God is real and that the Bible is his divinely inspired word. This is actually the second collection of studies in a series designed to explore the essential tenets of the Christian faith. In the first set of studies, we explored the concept of worldview, the claims the Bible makes about itself, and the reasons we choose to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. We also looked at the story that unfolds in the Bible and concluded with an overview of what is required for spiritual growth. Those six studies were loosely based on the first article of Christ Church's Statement of Faith. The 66 canonical books of the Bible, as originally written, were inspired of God, hence free from error. They constitute the only infallible guide in faith and life. This set of studies explores the second article in our statement of faith, which reads, There is one God, the creator and preserver of all things, infinite in being and perfection. He exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are one substance and equal in power and glory. It's not my intention to retrace the ground we covered in the first series, which means that we will not be debating whether God exists or whether we can trust the Bible. Instead, I am writing for those who believe that the Bible is true and that the God described on its pages is real. This is a study about how we might know Him in a more intimate, life-transforming way. But before we go much further, it's probably wise for me to share all of my starting assumptions. There are five of them. Number one, You were created to know God. Jeremiah 9 reads, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. And John 17 reads, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There are several theories about where we came from and why we're here. The Bible's position is pretty simple. God made us so that we might know, honor, and enjoy Him. Our ultimate good is not found in money, marriage, interesting work, or friends, however good they may be. Instead, it is found in God. This is a far-reaching and radical claim, so let me be sure you understand exactly what I'm saying. For starters, I am not suggesting that knowing about Him is the goal. The knowledge we are called to is not the complex understanding sought by philosophers, but the intimate knowledge sought by friends. I know about Michael Jordan. I do not know him. It's the second we're after. 
This is not to suggest that knowing about God is unimportant, nor that book learning leads to a lifeless faith, as if there was something godly about being uninformed. But knowing him, at least as I am defining this concept, goes further than knowing about him. Many Christians never make the transition. They embrace a theoretical knowledge that seldom pushes past the level of theological chatter. In fact, so many people make this mistake that Soren Kierkegaard joked that if most Christians were faced with one door labeled heaven and another labeled lectures on heaven, they would choose the second. I am also not suggesting that we were made to know God because God needs us. Upon hearing that we're expected to honor and praise God, some people mistakenly believe that he is either a tad lonely or in need of an ego boost. Neither is true. God is not only entirely self-sufficient, but he exists in the perfect community of his holy triune nature. He has never been lonely, nor has he ever needed anyone or anything. Instead, God created us to enjoy him. We are the ones who benefit. Entering into a relationship with God, especially the unhindered access we will encounter in the world to come, is the highest honor we could ever be given. Finally, when I talk about knowing God, I am not focusing on what happens after we die. Many people correctly believe that they need to get right with God so that they can gain admission to heaven. But some of these same people mistakenly assume that once they come to faith, their relationship with God is on hold until their death. This is contrary to what the Bible teaches or what his followers have experienced. You were created to know God now to enjoy an intimate, personal, and life-changing relationship with Him today. That is why you have always had an awareness of His presence and are drawn to beauty and inclined to worship. That is also why we have a gnawing sense of incompleteness without Him. Those who do not embrace God or who have a small and skewed view of who He is try to fill the God-shaped void in their lives with other things. You do not need to. You have been invited to know, honor, and enjoy God right now. It is what you were created for. Assumption number two, our relationship with God is blocked by sin. In Romans 3, Paul wrote, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Isaiah 6, we read, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. As an altogether perfect being, God is unwilling to enter into a relationship with us until our sin is addressed. This is not because he is spiteful, mean-spirited, or ungenerous. It's because he's perfect. If he dismissed our moral debt without payment, He would be making a mistake and violating his just and perfect character. To embrace us in spite of it would be to compromise his righteousness. This means that although we were created to know God, our sin prevents us from approaching him. God's solution to this problem was to send his son, Jesus Christ, to absorb the punishment for our sin into his own body. Those who embrace Christ are allowed to trade their sin, past, present, and future, for his righteousness. Justice is preserved even as we are restored to the Father. Of course, this requires that we acknowledge our brokenness and call out to Christ, something not everyone is willing to do. Some refuse to admit that they're sinful, others refuse God's help, and still others either believe that they have better options or refuse to believe that Christ's death has anything to do with them. Let me go back to the Mount Baker climb to illustrate what I'm referring to. About a thousand feet from the top of Mount Baker, our path stopped at the lip of a deep crevasse. After scouting around for other options, our lead guide determined that the only way forward was a narrow sheet of ice that spanned from one side to the other. 
This meant that in order to get to the top, we had to trust our weight to a six-foot-long ice bridge, one of only one that was only three feet wide and six inches thick. If it broke, we'd fall into a 200-foot crater. We attached extra safety lines and took other precautions to make our crossing as safe as we knew how. But at some point, every climber had to put their weight down on the bridge. There was no other way. The Bible teaches that knowing God is no different. The only path between where we stand and where God the Father resides is a narrow bridge called Christ. Not everyone is willing to cross it. Some insist it will not hold. Others claim there are other options. Still others see no reason to push for the top. As I noted earlier, it's my assumption that you're familiar with Christ's work and have embraced him as Lord. Therefore, in this set of studies, we will focus on a second barrier we face, a lack of clarity about who God really is. Assumption number three, our view of God is always limited and often flawed. Isaiah 55 reads, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. About 50 years ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a book entitled, Your God is Too Small, in which he argued that many people have a tragically skewed understanding of God. He went on to describe some of the most popular misconceptions, including God is a cosmic bellhop who can be dispatched at any time to secure good parking or help you win the lottery. God is an aging English actor wrapped in a white bedsheet who stands on a ball of cotton. God as a reformed ogre who has repented for losing his temper in the past, in other words, the Old Testament, and has become much more accepting of human behavior now, and God as a police officer who serves man as a kind of cosmic conscience. My first image of a supreme being was shaped by a picture Jerry Stauffer, a neighbor boy, drew on the floor of my parents' garage when I was four years old. It obviously left quite a mark because I not only remember the drawing— aging English actor. I also remember believing Jerry when he told me that I better not step on the picture if I knew what was good for me. My understanding of God changed a bit a year later when Terry Van Updorp told me that he was recording all the bad words I said in a big black book, God as Cosmic Police Officer. Neither of these views were accurate, but that didn't stop me from believing them. Many people believe in a God, but believing in a God the God of our own design, is not the same thing as knowing the God who has revealed himself, the God who revealed himself to Moses or through Christ. Our goal must be to know the great I am. Unfortunately, left to ourselves, almost everyone tends to reduce God to a manageable size. This is tragic. I'll say it again. Many people give some sort of a head nod to a God. Our goal is to know our creator in spirit and in truth. This means we must set aside the ideas we've picked up about him from our imagination, our speculation, and simple idle chatter, and ground our understanding of him in his revelation of himself. Let me begin by acknowledging that we will never know everything there is to know about God. For starters, he is transcendent. This means that he is gloriously beyond our understanding and above and beyond the universe he created. Consequently, the only things we can know about him are those things he chooses to reveal to us, and we have no reason to believe that he has revealed all of himself to us. Additionally, he is infinite, which means that even if, we were to fully, even if he were to fully disclose himself, we could not grasp it. David confessed as much when he said that God's nature was too wonderful for me. I cannot contain it. 
And St. Augustine made the same point when he wrote, Si comprehendus non est dus. If we understand him, he is not God. However, while the Bible points out the challenges we face, it also clearly announces that God can be known. Indeed, knowing him is why we were born. We cannot let the limits of our own intellectual capacity slow down our pursuit of him. It is one thing to have an incomplete view of God because of things we cannot control. It's a different matter to have an incomplete view of him because of our own disobedience or lack of effort. I'm happy to report that after 30 years of Bible study, my understanding of God has dramatically changed. I now know him to be a loving, powerful, gracious, holy, and merciful father who is even more majestic than the universe he made. I realize that he not only cannot be captured in the drawings of a five-year-old, but that he is way beyond my own imagination. The more I study the Bible, the more I realize how much bigger he is than my limited view. But most people are not even studying. Many people base their view of God on pop theology, TV talk shows, and simple conjecture. Their view of the creator of the universe is scandalously small. Believing in a God is not enough. We must not only deal with the barrier our sin creates. We must also work to conform our understanding of who God is with who he says he is. Assumption number four. Wrong views about God lead to trouble. Exodus 3. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Having just argued that our grandest view of God is small and flawed, I'd now like to explain the two reasons why this is a problem. First, wrong thoughts about God lead to trouble. Whether you're aware of it or not, what you think about God influences your life more than anything else. It affects your values, moods, decisions, and thoughts about the future. It molds the way you spend money and treat other people. Mistakes about God, even small ones, lead to significant problems down the line. A.W. Tozer spoke about this in his classic work, The Knowledge of the Holy. After first noting that we cannot understand who we are until we first understand who God is, Tozer goes on to write, quote, Our thoughts about God are more important than any creeds we affirm, because we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. End of quote. Wrong thoughts about God lead to trouble. Second, wrong thoughts about God not only lead to problems, they are a problem. The Bible actually has a special word for what I'm writing about here. It is idolatry. Idols are false images of God. Idolatry is worshiping them, which you can do without ever bowing your knee to a statue. In fact, it's a very common sin. Again, I turn to Tozer to develop this point. Quote, Among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at bottom a libel of his character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is, in itself a monstrous sin, and substitutes for the true God one made after its own likeness. End of quote. In case you think Tozer and I are overstating this point, let me direct your attention to the third chapter in the book of Exodus, where God reveals himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush. The account unfolds as follows. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. 
Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to the Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. In order to appreciate the full force of God's answer to Moses, you need to understand two things. One, this is the first time God ever revealed his name to man. The book of Genesis opens by announcing, In the beginning God and references God hundreds of times. But before Exodus 3, the Hebrew words that are translated God in our English Bibles are titles, not names. That is, they're similar to words such as teacher or doctor that simply describe a position or role. God's response to Moses' question is the first time in Scripture he reveals his name to his people. Two, the name God selects for himself makes a bold statement about his independence. The title is designed to say, I will tell you who I am, and you are to take great care to think of me in exactly this way. I'll spare you a lesson in ancient Semitic syntax, but you need to know that the Hebrew language gets a little odd here. The word selects The word God selects for his name is the only noun in the entire Hebrew vocabulary that has four letters instead of three, and it is so sacred that many Jews will not even attempt to pronounce it. There is some debate as to whether it should be translated, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, but there is no confusion about its meaning. God's name is a strong rebuke against anyone who would attempt to define him. God is who God is. His nature does not conform to our thoughts and hopes. Our thoughts must conform to him. Given the thrust of Exodus 3, I believe William Templeton was right when he wrote, It is much worse to have a false idea of God than no idea at all. Assumption number five. Knowing God is an all-consuming and lifelong quest. In Philippians 3, Paul wrote, 
I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. So far, I have argued that we were created to know God. Therefore, we will not experience lasting peace and joy until our relationship with him is healthy and growing. That the path to the Father goes through the Son. That many people have a tragically skewed understanding of who God is, which stunts their relationship with him. In fact, wrong thinking about God not only leads to sin, it is a sin itself. My final point is that knowing God in the fullest sense of that word is not a simple three-step process. It's the byproduct of a life rightly lived. Let me be clear on this point. We become a Christian by being adopted into the family of God on the basis of the work Christ did on the cross. We do not contribute to that in any way. Instead, God meets us where we are and justifies us through his actions. At this moment, I am not speaking about the process of our justification, which affects our legal position, but instead of our sanctification, that is, of our spiritual maturity. Our growth here is also a mysterious work enabled by the Holy Spirit, but it is something we are called to pursue. To that end, let me repeat. Knowing God in the fullest sense is not a simple three-step process. It is the byproduct of a life rightly lived. We do not fall up a mountain, nor do we fall into spiritual maturity. Those who are significantly transformed in the image of Christ report that their growth is a result of a long obedience in the same direction. It is a life of study, devotion, prayer, and service. What exactly does this mean? How do we start? What's my day supposed to look like? I've been hesitant to answer these questions in the past, in part because I know how little ground I've taken, and in part because the process of spiritual growth is a bit mysterious. I do not believe that it can be tightly scripted. However, having been helped by some clear counsel from others, I'd like to use part of the next four studies to suggest a plan that I believe can carry you forward. Our approach will combine a systematic study of the Bible with a handful of spiritual disciplines. Many who want to know God begin their study by focusing on what others believe. Some use reason to arrive at their own ideas. Others turn to their imagination. Christianity is based on the belief that God has revealed himself to us through creation, our conscience, the Bible, and Jesus Christ, and that therefore, whatever else we might do, we must be students of the book. Our specific approach to Bible study will focus on God's attributes. That is, instead of studying his titles or names or reading through the book of Exodus to see how he is described, we will be exploring certain divine qualities such as holiness and love, tracing their development from Genesis through Revelation. Then, in order to make sure we push past knowing about God to actually knowing him, I will list various devotional practices that others have found helpful in their own spiritual development. That means that the four studies that follow will contain two parts. 
biblical truth about God and exercises designed to help us push the information from our heads into our hearts. We'll begin with an exploration of his triune nature, continue with the discussion about the ways he is different from us, and then finish with a survey of his moral attributes. So, lace up your hiking boots and strap on your backpack as we begin to move out of the foothills and ascend the mountain. If there's any way we can help you on your spiritual journey, please contact us at cclf.org or email us at fenceposts at cclf.org.